This is the Prying Priest Podcast, and I'm Father Yuri Hladio. You're listening to the first half of an unedited interview about the personal stories of amazing people and why they have come to believe what they do. The second half of these interviews are reserved for patrons only. If you like this show, visit my website, pryingpriest.com, for more content and to learn how you can become a patron of the show. Enjoy the first half of this interview. Welcome, Braden Siemens, to your third Prying Priest conversation. Glad to be here. Glad to be back. You are a returning champion officially. It's official. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful, very honored to be on the Prying Priest podcast uh, the third time, the triune time. The triune time. Uh, yep. and, yeah. And I mean, I'm excited about what we're talking about today. Death and anxiety, death and dying. These are the things that fill my mind as macabre as it sounds right pretty often so it's uh it'll be good to this will be cathartic for me to have more conversations about it so you mentioned recently that you gave a talk at cmu canadian mennonite university about all of your work on death and dying and i'm wondering and you you we were having a phone conversation and you began talking about how you opened the convert you you open the talk about talking about a particular event from Moby Dick is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So I I, I did a uh, a guest lecture in a class on death and dying that's being offered at Canadian Mennonite University. But my research stems from my master's degree, which I did at McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario. Um, and my research was particularly on a philosopher named Martin Heidegger, who lived in the twentieth century and was a controversial figure for many reasons, uh, not the least one being that he was a Nazi uh, sympathizer, later retracted it, and it's complicated, but um, he also wrote a book called Being in Time, which is filled with interesting um, and groundbreaking ideas, in my, in my opinion, groundbreaking ideas about death and anxiety. But yes, in this lecture, I opened with this, this interesting, um, which is poignant, I found, um, example of anxiety and death that comes from Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. And in Moby Dick, have you read it, Yuri? I have not. Okay. So in the, in the book, there's two kind of main characters, protagonists, and then there's the antagonist, Captain Ahab, who has the vendetta against the great white whale. Um, but there's Ishmael, who's a Christian, kind of a Christian Platonist. Like he has this really strong view of the immortality of the soul and the difference between body and soul. So he's kind of a dualist. But then you, one of the first chapters of, I think it's the very first chapter, actually, he finds himself um, feeling this, this wanderlust for the sea and goes to, um, you know, try to find a job and, and going, going seafaring and is, is, is um, trying to get a, a room in this hotel that is just full. There's no room in the, in the hotel but then has to sleep in the same room in the same bed as a stranger. And the stranger just so happens to be this Polynesian pagan cannibal named Queequeg. Um, and he's terrified by the idea of sleeping in the same bed as this cannibal. He's going to eat him. He's going to eat me in my sleep. Um, but they're forced to sort of, you know, be bedfellows. And uh, it, throughout the narrative, they grow quite attached. And there's a certain 
scene near maybe the just over halfway point of the book where they're out at sea and Queek Queek um, uh, becomes sick with a, with a fatal illness. And, you know, through this revelation that I might die soon, Queek Queek um, orders the carpenter on the ship to build him a coffin uh, so that he could, uh, you know, come to terms with his imminent death by lying in the coffin. And so, of course, the shipmates think Queek Queek is just absolutely insane. You know, perhaps you're going to recover yet, they might say, or, you know, why rush fate's intrepid hands? Uh, but, you know, Queek Queek maintains that the commissioning of this coffin um, so that he can lie in it for hours upon hours is absolutely essential. Um, and so Ishmael, you know, he's the Christian believing in the immortality of the soul, finds Queek Queek's practices strange, trivial, superstitious. Others on board think he's foolish and theatrical. Yet Queek Queek, for whom the coffin is built, longs to grow acquainted with death, to grow comfortable with that as his ultimate destination. And then there's this comical bit where suddenly, as he's lying in the coffin, he remembers that he has he owes somebody something somewhere back on the on the island that he's from. And he bursts back to life immediately and recovers from his illness. And it's kind of this comical thing about, you know, the pagan doesn't care for death. He's the stoic, but that's how he overcomes it. But then there's a second scene kind of relevant to this scene. And spoiler alert, I think, you know, it's been out for long enough. Kind of like if we spoiled the movies last time, I feel like I'm allowed to spoil a bit of the ending. Absolutely. Spoiled too, too much. But there's a scene near the, well, it's actually in the epilogue of the book um, where Ishmael, the lone survivor of the bitter battle at sea with the great white whale, is near death and he's drowning, desperately looking for some sort of safety vessel. And Melville puts it this way he says, and then Ishmael saw the coffin life boy shot lengthwise from the sea, fell over and floated by my side. Buoyed up by that coffin for almost one whole day and night, I floated on a soft and dirge-like mane. So this passage in the epilogue of Moby Dick really ignited something in me, sort of a metaphorical match that uh, quite likely, um, you know, it was, the, it was the Christian in Moby Dick in the end who in learning from his pagan neighbor, who he was bedfellows with, who he shared meals with, who it was in, in spending time with him that he learned to lie comfortably in the coffin to come to terms with the finality and inevitability of death. And as Melville puts it so eloquently in his book, to, to bury thyself in life. And so by thinking about death, you sort of immerse yourself more into life is the, is the argument. And so when I, when I did my master's thesis, I sort of endeavored a similar task to Queek Week, uh, as it were, to construct a coffin with words, <laughs> writing my thesis mm. about anxiety and death. And then also uh, on the side, while I did that, I wrote a poetry book, which I'm trying to publish uh, called The Color of Death. Um, and that was sort of my own personal processing yeah. of my anxiety. So, so that would be a good springboard for the conversation. Yeah, I guess. Could you look back into your life and 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 maybe talk a bit about maybe a few moments or a few ideas that really made you think about death, right? Yeah, right. Why, why is that? Like so, so many people just think, well, I'll think about death, you know, when I'm dead. 
Um, and you know, life is to live and we shouldn't be thinking about death. And, you know, there's even some Christian groups that say death, you know, um, our, our natural death as humans is an abnormality and suffering is an abnormality. And, you know, ultimately it's, um, if we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved from, you know, all this, all this suffering and and death. So yeah. what, What is it about death that captured your imagination? Yep, yep, yep. Well, I, I grew up in a, as, as we've talked about in the first episode, I grew up in a concentrated charismatic church community where belief in supernatural miracles and even, even uh, actual attempts at resurrecting people from the dead were perhaps as commonplace as, you know, burnt coffee or popcorn prayers in other evangelical churches. So like being a charismatic Christian in many ways felt like, and for many today feels like, being swept up into this enchanted realm where only, you know, a a few select, uh, only a select few know this mystery that's all around you at all the time. There's a sort of gnosis to it. And, uh, you know, the world takes on a shine and a glimmer that is reflected in the expectation that the believer brings to any miracle, including resurrection of the dead, and emphatically so at resurrection of the dead. And so the world's sort of split open by this heavenly knife and, you know, the delectable taste of heaven is all over. And it's, you know, you can talk about it in so many different ways, but um, I was, I was really moved when moving, when, when I was transitioning in and out of that community, uh, I began to sort of see the ways in which my community, while it opened up the world in that enchanted sense, it also tightly sealed up the exterior world away from us and caused, you know, many of us to turn a blind eye to realities so alternative to our own that they could be considered blasphemous. And death almost took on this taboo. Let's not talk about that kind of thing. And so when I became more disenchanted, death became prominent. And, you know, there's a a short story by Chekhov where he talks about, um, it's called the man in the case. And there's a man who's possessed by this constant and insuperable impulse to envelop himself, to create a casing for himself that would isolate him, protect him from all outside influences. For whom, you know, reality is very irritating and frightening. And in the same way, I found myself hiding my religious thoughts in this case of my enchantment. And, and when that, when those walls, when that casing was peeled back, um, the first thing to go or to be questioned or to that shook me was the doctrine and belief in the literal resurrection of the dead. And we've, we've kind of touched on that a bit in the first episode, but there was sort of a, there's a sort of, in a certain, certain sense, going to church in a charismatic tradition, you get a, a daily dose of afterlife medication every yeah. Sunday morning in communion so, science class. <laughs> can we, can we maybe define a couple of terms? So, so I think resurrection is used in a, in, in, uh, in multiple ways in Christian communities and it's used in multiple ways, you know, around the world by different religions, but let's talk maybe particular on how, how Christians would identify maybe different kinds of resurrection. Um, like, like off the top of my head, you know, the, the, the resurrection of the, the, the general resurrection of all people at the end of time, right. Is this concept that exists that, you know, at the end of the world, everyone will rise warts and all from, from the tomb physically. Right. And be, and be living in God's age, God's kingdom or heaven or whatever it might be. 
Um, you also have this sense, uh, you also have the term that's used for people, let's say in the stories of the gospels where Jesus raises people from the dead, right? Then we mm -hmm. use the term resurrection where they, they were, let's say they didn't have, you know, medical death at that time, the same way that we have it today in North America, but they were dead. And then Christ performs a sign or a miracle or something. And these people, um, the breath returns back into the body and they are resuscitated, so to speak. And then there's like a third one, which is the resurrection of Jesus, which I, I think is uh, portrayed as actually quite different from the previous resurrections. At least I would argue that there is a difference there. Um, and at least I think in Christian churches, you'd probably, those three types of resurrection or those three, those are three things that Christians are referring to when they're talking about resurrection and yeah does that does that uh does that track with the way that resurrection was used in your religious upbringing well it's, it's strange i mean everything is so complicated and nuanced so people are people are so different in a, in a community that has particular commitments people can be so variegated still and so i i think there's this prevalence of a belief in resurrection that is not bodied but, but spiritual bodied. So there's this idea, you know, that we will have imperishable, glorious, glorious bodies. I think it's in Corinthians. Right. And that's, um, even if you watch the movie, we or this Christmas, we watched, uh, it's a wonderful life. It's the first time I've ever watched it. Oh, great. And, and it, it's a wonderful life is it's not explicitly like a Christian, whatever, but it exists within that 1960s American Christianese sort of world. And, salvation is almost portrayed as uh, like a hierarchical from glory to glory movement where at some point, yeah, you're, you're, you're a saved person and you get to go to heaven, but then at one point you actually get your wings. Right. And that humans actually are called ultimately to become angels in heaven. Right. And the, the famous line being uh, every time a bell rings, an angel gets its wings. Oh, nice. And that's supposed to be, that's supposed to be us humans receiving right, like right, wings right. to fly up closer to God. Yeah. I mean, Anyways. It's, 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 yeah. And that's the commonplace metaphysics around resurrection. I think in the Western world is we've inherited this disembodied soul, like floating <laughs> that happens after you die to the, you know, Empyrean up there. And, uh, and I, I don't know if this has a lot to do with, you know, it probably does with the scientific revolution because, um, you think about somebody like Tertullian in the first few centuries of Christian, the patristic thought, who's, who's telling his, his church that if somebody dies by a wild beast in a Colosseum, if a martyr is killed by the empire, then don't worry about burial practices in this, in this sense, uh, because God will find a way to bring back all of their pieces together and God can do anything in the end. But I think in this kind of modern milieu that we live in that no longer can like what happens when I am eating plants that are now dead and recycled through me and my whole body is just particles that are always changing. And what part, what, what, you know, Augustine says that when we, when we resurrect, we're going to be 33 years old because that's the age that Jesus was when he was at his peak of life before he died. And so like, well, what is this arbitrary? Are we just making this up? Is this just like, theological gymnastics to to kind of keep reading the bible literally 
Um, but you know what? In a, in a way, even subconsciously, the church has moved away from a literal thinking of bodily resurrection, even though we recite it in our creeds, and even though we, even though we are so concerned with finding out the people who don't believe it and exiling them from our community, it doesn't seem to be in our collective unconscious. Do you want to clarify that? Do you you mean that the understanding that there will be a a literal physical future resurrection of your body is an aspect of Christian theology that Christians have left behind? Is that what you mean? I think so. I think so. I, I know that theologians have not left behind. I know that many pastors have not. I think the lay person, the ones that I've spoken to, and I've spoken to many, and the way that I see people talk about this in, I don't know, Christian social media or, you know, mass mass churches, it doesn't seem to be that this is something that's being preached or taught to lay people in the church. It doesn't seem to be a ubiquitous belief, this idea that we're going to have all of our molecular makeup restored in the new age when Christ returns. It doesn't seem to be a, an idea that people are, are really, I mean, if you, if you press somebody on it, that's a, that's a faithful Christian fundamentalist even, or maybe not a fundamentalist. I think, I think many would be like, yeah, I believe in resurrection of the dead. And they just kind of tell you that, but I don't think they actually know what they're saying when they say that. I think most of them actually have this idea of maybe conscious soul that is in them somewhere that makes up their emotions and makes up their personality and makes up their, the desires and their longings and yearnings. And that, that thing is going to be in the next life with your memories of your loved ones. And it's very sentimental. The whole thing is very sentimental. Uh, So yeah, I, that's kind of my understanding of what's happening in modern day Christianity. But I also, you, you asked me the question before, if I have any personal experiences with it. And I was about to say that, yeah, I mean, I I had, I used to wake up in the middle of the night, terrified with with these creeping thoughts in the silence, uh, which I brushed aside very quickly with either prayer or, you know, television, food, masturbation, whatever, you know, whatever social media, whatever came to mind. Like there are so many ways, there are so many coping mechanisms out of which we can we can distract ourselves from the creeping call uh, of death, which is in the form of anxiety. And I think religion is a primary coping me- mechanism, and and that's actually Heidegger's big critique about uh, historical Christianity is that it makes people distract it distracts people from thinking about death in the same way that social media might, in the same way that. Um, a lot of things. Would this be a good time to kind of, with three three quick points, explain what Heidegger sure. thinks about death? Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. So point number one that we need to think about when we think about Heidegger and many existentialists that came after him is that death is not a thing, nor is death an event that happens to me or to you. I cannot and will not ever experience my own death. Rather, what I do experience is dying, is waiting to die. For some, this waiting is maybe more obvious, you know, as a person who's maybe sick or diagnosed with a fatal virus or a disease. Uh, For many others, 
waiting is less, you know, of a waiting and more of a total obliviousness to death. They just don't want to think about it. They don't want to deal with it. Um, and so for those people, um, they might flee from it to the point where they never think about it. Death is a, death is a, a threat to flee from, to distract ourselves from at all costs. There's a, another philosopher I really liked named Emmanuel Levinas who puts it this way. He says, death carries with it the impossibility of retreat. So obviously he thinks this is just an impossible endeavor. We can't run away from death, even if we think we can. It's going to catch up to us eventually. So point number two, um, kind of, uh, it, it opens up this distinction that Heidegger has. He calls it uh, the two, he calls it his care structure because it has everything to do with how we care for our world and how we navigate and experience our world. So he splits us into two different categories. Um, number one, authentic. And number two, inauthentic, easy to remember. Authentic and inauthentic. So for him, an inauthentic person is a person who um, is fallen, but not fallen in a sin nature or something like that. But we're fallen because we have this corruptibility to our thinking. We have this ease with which we just lean back and let society guide us with its norms and with its views. We're completely absorbed by our surroundings, which modify our values, our goals, personalities. And he calls this temptation uh the you know the the he calls that which which tempts us the they with a definite article the they uh and they the they conditions us you know this is they insinuate thoughts in our mind <laughs> and this involves you know first and foremost a total distraction from death in every way like i mentioned some examples earlier but you know, maybe Netflix, cruise packages, shopping sprees, spas, religious services, sexual fantasies, tweets from politicians. These are all ways in which the, they distract us from the demands of death, which often we consider just a little inked box in a newspaper titled obituary with little blurbs scribbled beneath it. A picture that flashes by so thoughtlessly as a turn of the page. We're not even thinking about it. It's just this peripheral phenomena that we can dismiss easily. Um, so that's the inauthentic self for Heidegger. There's lots of great examples in literature of this. Tolstoy has his example of Ivan Illich, who does everything possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and, 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 and even the people at his funeral look at him and say to themselves, it is he who is dead and not I. And they feel burdened not by the death of their friend or the inevitability of their own death, but that they have to attend, they have to uh, be bothered by the nuisance of attending a long funeral and having to condole this yeah. mourning family. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is a, there's, so that whole book is this process of this man named Ivan Illich from the moment that he sort of gets injured, the whole novel, I guess, uh, is the journey of him slowly dying. And it, it, I think it goes back to that first point you were making um, that we should understand about Heidegger's thinking about death, which is you will not experience your death. Right? I don't know. Sorry, that might not be how he uh, would frame it. But um, you, you go yeah. through dying, yeah. right? And, and the book actually just ends with him, the last moment of his dying. And the then it ends. Dying. Exactly. And then it ends. And there is no, like, 
death in that sense. But here's an interesting question. Like, I think what we tend to do as humans is personify and anthropomorphize ideas, right? Things like that. And, um, and, and we get characters like the Grim Reaper, right? And we start to think of death as a thing, right? Yeah. Um, I guess, sorry, that's not a question. It's just an observation of how, <laughs> uh, what, what humans do to death. Yeah, I wonder if there's something to do with like a, if, I wonder if that's also a security blanket, a caricaturization of something that we can't actually, that's not embodied and that cannot be, um, that cannot be drawn out in an mm-hmm. image mm-hmm. because death is not an image. It's nothing. I mean, maybe it's something, but we don't know. That's what makes right. it so terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um and so I wonder if those kind of characterizations of death as you know, the Grim Reaper or... It helps you grasp something. Yeah. It, ha- it, help- it helps you grasp something. Right? Like you're not... You're I not prefer Sheol. <laughs> Sheol as the image? Well, it's just the sort of ambiguous landing spot of the dead, which is not an antithesis to heaven but the antithesis to just existence in the old testament so i mean right. it's pretty uh do you want to give a boring. quick uh, uh reader's digest uh uh thing about what sheol is oh my goodness okay yeah i mean i can try sheol is uh i mean you could help me you could help me because you might it actually might be more in your mind right now the forefront than mine uh but sheol from what i understand is an old testament uh idea that is a sort of when 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 a person dies they go to this place which is not really uh, it's a place where well i think originally it was actually uh where they sacrificed children to molech and uh it was seen as just like a, a sort of like that's just a bad place because that's where that happens and that's where you go to suffer and that's where injustice takes place and that's all that stuff. But then it kind of became this like metaphysical destination where people go when they die to sleep. I'm, if I'm correct, it's a sleeping site. Right. Uh, right. The, um, the, the big difference is when we think about, when, when you think about the Bible and you think about how the Bible thinks about afterlife, you shouldn't have, you know, Dante's divine comedy in your mind. Right. With, uh, oh, yeah, the, the, infer- no. the inferno of hell. I always and, take that for granted that people have that as, a, as yes. their primary. And, and that they think and it's okay to have that as an image. If you're reading Dante's divine comedy, but it's not okay to have Dante's divine comedy image of heaven and hell in your mind when you're reading the Bible. Right. And the afterlife in the Bible seems to be, and this is, you know, as far as I understand, I'm still learning about all this, but there seems to be this place called Sheol, which is the realm of the dead kind of, it's not heaven. It's not hell. It's, it's, I, I describe it to people like a, a waiting room that has a black and white TV that's playing golf. It's just <laughs> nice. You're kind of there. It's, you know, you're kind of, there's, Nothing much happening. And um, the just and the unjust go yes, together. Everybody goes. There seems to be, uh, it, depending on what time in history, there seems to be a, even a development into two camps that exist within. Like you get this bosom of Abraham, right? This idea yeah. that the righteous dead dwell with Abraham somehow, right? But it's far from heaven and hell. It's far from heaven and hell. And then, uh, you know, the New Testament comes around and the, and the entire desire is that, 
well, one day we will all resurrect, right? And that, and that Jesus resurrects first as the sort of first fruit of all those who are in, in shale. Um, yeah, there's much more to be said about it, but I just wanted to give a quick, uh, do we were using big words there? So I just wanted to give a quick, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Mapping back, where were we? Uh, Heidegger. So we were, we're on step two. I think you were finishing up step two. Yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll, I'll, I'll just finish that up by saying that to talk about inauthentic understandings of death or the inauthentic experience of death, it's not only individual, it can also be institutional. And um, religion can be a part of this. I mean, uh, a lot of scholars after Heidegger have talked about what, what's, what they name dirty death, which is this taboo we create around death. Um, thus, you know, in the, in the, in the middle ages, death had to, was something that had to be tamed and through, through ritualization and religion, the dying were surrounded by familial and ecclesial, ecclesial meaning church related supports, all of which were to sort of commend the dying to a common destination and to the unknown or heaven or hell, uh, or purgatory or whatever, um, but in the late medieval era, death takes on a more individualized character where the dying person hoped to gain immortality on the very basis of his individuality. The soul, not only immortal, but distinctly personal. So the surge of individuality was, is now kind of where we find ourselves um, as humans by ourselves, without supports, isolating, I, I, dying isolated, especially I mean, during COVID-19, how many people are dying isolated right now but but even before covid you know there's this idea that death is better left concealed from other people it's hidden behind closed doors um, of a bedroom fully individualized where the public and sometimes even the closest family are denied access traditional gathering place for community to pay Final respects has thus been sealed off by like doctors, medicalized. I know these are generalizations that these scholars have. Of course, there's exceptions to this, but there's a so, there's sort of a social impropriety and inconvenience of death that we we want to domesticate it, we want to separate it. Graveyards are now built outside of cities. I'm sure there's actual other reasons for that, but it's interesting to look at it from a sort of sociological perspective. Um, it's just disregarded. Oh, right. Um, and if the, if we do experience it, we experience it kind of in a, in, a, in a superficial sense, like a war film, where it's so gratuitous that it doesn't feel real, right? Um, and so Heidegger's writing at this time where privatization and medicalization of death was beginning to really heighten through the First and Second World Wars. Um, and so his focus on and his attitude about the denial concerning death is at you know the forefront of his mind. So point number three, what is the authentic experience then for Heidegger? Well, sort of that mode we talked about earlier of sitting in the coffin with Queek Queek, uh, yeah, but, but, but not, so, not so stoic as to think that we can somehow triumph over death and just completely, you know, stomp on the sting of death. You know, we can't, for Heidegger, we can't do that. So, but, but there, is a, there is a type of process of acceptance here for him. Um, so unlike the inauthentic selves for whom, you know, living in the world is comfortable, entertaining, authentic one experiences intense anxiety, a sense of disorientation, a vertigo that accompanies the revelation of death. So this is incredibly painful for Heidegger. 
And he suggests that those who acknowledge death, that recognize that they're awaiting to die, will then begin to interpret death not as an event that happens in the future one day, but as what he calls death becomes a phenomenon of life. So when death becomes a phenomenon of life, everything in your life takes on a different significance. Those concerns and cares that I once placed as the top priority of my life begin to completely dissipate into trivialities. Just like in, 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 a, in a Tolstoy's book, you know, Ivan Illich realizes in the last moments of his life, the sharp toll that death brings when he says, weeping, what if my whole life has really been wrong? And so you have these concerns that begin to be awakened, new formations of, of creative possibilities for how I should interpret and live my life, how I can rearrange meaning in such a way as to have my life be immersed, to bury myself in life. Back to the Melville quote. So then Heidegger tells the students, if you really want to live your life, walk through a graveyard every day. Walk through a cemetery every day. Mm. You live differently. So, so just to clarify uh, the point here, what Heidegger is trying to get after is you need to integrate death into every aspect of your, of your life. Yeah, uh, but not to paralyze you. Okay. But to create possibilities for you. And mm. so uh, this is all wrapped up in his views of time, which we, we won't talk about today because it's convoluted and really yeah. technical. It's, but. it's interesting that I, um, I recently finished reading The Ladder of Divine Ascent by a monk from the you know, 600s who lived in Egypt, uh, St. John of the Ladder. He's called Of the Ladder because he wrote The Ladder of Divine Ascent. Otherwise, you, people might know his name as John Climacus. Um, but he wrote this this guide for monks, right? Uh, okay, if you're going to go and be a monk solitary in the desert, here are like 30 aspects of monastic life that you need to, you know, uh, wrangle with. And one of them is, uh, that comes up over and over again, is the remembrance of death, right? That the remembrance of death is actually his his antidote to a lot of negative passions and desires. That's yeah. really interesting. I imagine that there are not a few monks who've really had to come to terms with this sort of dark night of the soul of death. And I wonder what that, how they would reconcile this with resurrection. How can you, and this is, this is one of the questions I asked in my thesis. How can we as people who come from a tradition that relies so, so foundationally on the resurrection of Christ, authentically confront, authentically in the Heideggerian sense of the word, confront our anxiety about death in such a way as to metamorphize our finitude, which is the technical way of saying, think differently resurrect our lives think differently about how we are living now right what uh, would you make what would you make of let's say this you know one of the central christian rituals for individual people which is baptism and the way that paul so the you know the apostle paul and that the you know who kicked off christianity um he wrote in the letter to the romans in the you know in 
the mid first century, he wrote about this ritual as a ritual enacting of you participating in the death of Christ, right? And then rising again. It's like a ritualistic in it's a ritualistic dying that, that Christians do when they enter the community. I guess, how would you, I, well, I guess a, a good, interesting question might be, is ritualizing it something that serves to help people internalize, you know, or, and, um, uh, internalize death into their lives in that Heideggerian sense, or is, is it something that distracts, right? Is it a way of hiding death, doing it ritually like this? I guess I don't know. It, it, well, first of all, people aren't getting baptized anymore. What? I have a friend who wrote a, um, who wrote a, uh, a thesis about why young people are not interested in baptism. Oh, like, like there's a movement of people not getting baptized. Christians. Yeah. Young Christians feel they, they, he, he argues that, um, that Christians are not getting baptized because they treat baptism like marriage, mm-hmm. which I don't think is an inaccurate way of thinking about it, but, mm-hmm. uh, but they want to date Jesus first before they get married, so to say, to the, to the religion, to the commitment of being a disciple of Christ. And so people are just, are just not getting, but I think the mentality for most people about baptism is they, I don't think they're thinking about death and resurrection in any literal sense. I think they're thinking about it in terms of a full commitment to a way of life that revolves around um, your church community, your, um, yeah, it, I guess your values, your political stance, perhaps. <laughs> right, like death. So you're saying in the in the mind of a average person getting baptized and joining a community, the actual sim, sim, the iconology of death and resurrection is not even on the brain. I don't think so, but you know what? It could be, and I think that's that's the that's the thing with this repository of traditions and and theological perspectives that the Christian umbrella has underneath it. There's just so many ways of approaching this stuff. And I think that that's liberating for us. I think we should dive in, so to speak, uh, to the waters of baptism uh, in a plethora of ways. Like there's probably just like, we could probably think of, I mean, there has been hundreds of different ways of thinking about baptism over the, over the centuries. So we could, yeah, we could use this as a tool for confronting our anxiety about death. I see no reason why not. Um, but I don't see people doing that very often. I also don't know if, if it's, if baptism in and of itself is a way of repressing our anxiety about death either. I don't think people are even thinking about that in terms of, mm-hmm. in those terms. Um, I see that more being a focus on Easter Sunday or, um, I don't know. Funerals. Funerals are huge. I've never been to a funeral where the pastor just says, uh, this is where we're all going to go. We have to come to terms with that. It's always like, and we will meet them again in heaven. We will all be you know, embracing each other's arms. So there'll, there'll be no more shedding of tears. And I get it. Yeah. I get it. It's the, it's the desirability bias. We want that so badly that we'll... I mean, I'm not trying to be like this psychoanalytical Freudian over here that thinks that we all have daddy issues and need to reconcile that through the Bible. 
but I, I, I do think it convenient that we read this text, this complicated text in a way that really matches up with our feeling to keep living mm-hmm. the feeling to be, to, you know, our, our, our natural evolutionary impulse to, to say hell no to death, <laughs> you know? Right. Uh, but I do think, you know what, actually, I do think there are really important things that we can learn about death through the death of Jesus and that we can learn about the anxiety about death through the death of Jesus that may just take a little bit of noticing a little bit of training our eyes to see what's there already. Yeah. And that was part of my thesis as well. I think we're going to, we're getting close to the end of the, the public side here, but I think we're going to talk particularly what I wanted to talk about in the Patreon half was actually the death of Jesus and you know, the way it's portrayed in the gospels and then the way that Christians actually, you know, relive or enact that story every year around Easter time and talking, you know, you mentioned that Heidegger had one of his criticisms or critiques of, of religious life is that it, it actually is one of the distractions that we use to not think about our you know impending death. And so I guess, you know, what we'll talk about there is to what degree is kind of celebrating the story of the death and resurrection. Can that be twisted into a way of not actually facing death at all? Yeah. Um, and if I could promote the Patreon part for yeah. a moment to get people to sign up for it and listen to it. So, so to reframe Heidegger's question is accusation. So if you're a Christian listening in, listen in. Heidegger says that you, as a Christian, make humans think, or maybe you think, that you can transcend your body somehow, that you you can transcend your temporality, your time-boundness, and then thus move beyond being human at all, being some sort of isolated soul. That's what he thinks. And he also thinks that Christianity causes you to believe this, um, and in so doing, can never confront death as it is your primary experience of the world. Cause he says, as soon as you're born, you're old enough to die. So that is your most basic rudimentary um, experience of the world is life and then death suddenly the possibility of death. And so uh, I want to argue that there might be a different way of understanding Christianity that retrieves a new way of thinking about this. That is authentic in the Heideggerian sense. And so if you want to listen to that, if you want to find your answers, I'm just kidding. I don't have all the answers, but you know, sign, <laughs> sign up for the Patreon, uh, uh, sign up for the Patreon side and you'll get all the answers to life's deepest questions. And I'm actually going to ask you this question on the Patreon half as well. Um, Brayden, are you afraid to die? I'm going to ask Braden if he's afraid to die on the Patreon half. So if you want to become a patron and get access to the second half of this interview and all the previous interviews, then go to pryingpriest.com slash support and become a patron. I think we're, this is going to be episode in my 27th conversation. So uh, you're, you're looking at almost uh, probably about 25 hours of extra content right now. If you become a patron, which is a lot, Uh, not, not just content interviews, conversations i'm not a content creator i'm a conversation haver <laughs> um okay uh maybe we can uh, spend a, a couple of minutes here uh w- were there any uh 
so you talked about that first point. Maybe can we recap some of these points? Actually, the first point, if I remember correctly, uh, that you were mentioning that Heidegger's perspective on death was that death itself isn't a thing, right? Dying is a thing, but death itself yep. is not a thing. And, and then we we as humans struggle with that because we want to maybe tame that non thingness, yeah, um, and and bind it and to be able to point at something, right? Uh, then the second one was, uh, authentic and inauthentic approaches to, to death. Yeah. The second one was inauthentic and the third was authentic. Oh, okay. So I guess you, you mentioned that, um, Heidegger said that if you should walk through a cemetery once a day, right. And, and to, to me, that seems like, you know, that's, that's actually a ritual action to remind you of something that will actually affect your life outside of that context. Right. Which to me is yep. like what a lot of Christian and religious rituals are. Is, yeah. there any, is there anything that you do in particular, Brayden, to remind yourself of, of death? Yeah. I mean, um, when I was doing, when I was writing my thesis about Heidegger, I would write, I would walk through cemeteries, not every day. I tried to do it most days though. I tried to do maybe every, every two, three days I'd walk through a cemetery near my house. Um, and then I also wrote a lot of poetry. So I would spend time just thinking about it. What, what if this was my last moment, minutes, hours, day? What does this mean for my life? There is really interesting research done about near-death experiences where um, people who are about to die will scan their life like a detached, you know, uh, eagle-eyed perspective and look back at their childhood through their adolescent, through their young adult life and kind of judge it. They'll judge whether or not this is a good life or not, like Ivan Illich does. And there's a theologian, Dale Allison, who says that this experience of near-death experience of judging our lives is actually perhaps where we get ideas of the final judgment is that we actually are the final judge or if you still want to commit to this idea of a final judgment, then that's sort of pre, the, the preamble to that is sort of within this near-death experience where we ourselves are the judge of our lives and death reminds that as part of that judgment. So death can actually be a judgment of our lives. And I think that practice of writing poetry for me was sort of a, a recording and an accounting of my own life and the value of my life. and perhaps even those ordinary moments can become more sacred because of that judgment that death has over us. You've just finished listening to the first half of this interview. Find out how to access the second half by visiting my website, pryingpriest.com. We'll see you next time. Say, why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside?